Well, if you've been with us for a while now, you know we're going through a study of the book of Colossians, and we are actually going to take a break from that today because we are going to focus a little bit on the Christmas story. Well, actually, we're going to do a behind-the-scenes look at the Christmas story. We're going, to, we're going to pull back the curtain a little bit and try to peek behind the Christmas story to see some of the things going on around it behind the scenes. I'm going to share three stories with you today, three short stories from the Bible that all tie together. They span over 700 years, but they're tied together in some pretty amazing ways. And I hope that what we're going to do today is create some helpful reminders for what Christmas is really all about and maybe give you some insights that you didn't have before into what Jesus was doing when he came here to this earth. Christmas is an awesome time of the year. I, I love Christmas. It's a, it's a wonderful holiday. But I don't know about you. Sometimes I feel like Christmas, although it is wonderful and it's amazing and it's filled with awesome traditions and, and lots of great food and time with family and friends. On the other hand, it can also be exhausting, right? How many of you feel that Christmas can sometimes be exhausting? Anybody feeling that right now? Okay, all women, one guy. Okay. Christmas can be an exhausting time of year for us. It's filled with stress. It can be a very sad and lonely time of year for some people, especially if we've lost a loved one this year. Um, There's gonna be that sense of grieving and, and missing that. It can be an incredibly busy time of year, a stressful time of year. And of course, we're very distracted. We're distracted by decorations. We're distracted by all the food and preparation. We're distracted by getting ready for family gatherings. We're distracted by all the advertising and the gifts that we have to buy. There's just a lot. There's a lot we have to do. And maybe this year will be a little more low-key for you than most. Maybe not. I don't know. But the distractions that are before us constantly try to pull us away from thinking about the real reason why we celebrate in the first place. Advertisers spend millions and millions of dollars to make sure that your attention is focused on them. And you have a limited amount of hours in the day, a limited amount of attention energy to give to things. And and during a season where most of our attention should honestly really be focused on Jesus and worshiping God for what he did for us, a lot of our attention is honestly focused on material things, on things that are of, of lesser importance, I would say. And certainly advertisers don't help with that. And of course, advertisers' job is to maximize profits. For them, that's the real reason for the season, right? Sell as many things as possible at a highest price as possible. And that's their reason for the season. And nothing wrong with trying to make a profit in business. If you're in business and you don't make a profit, that's probably a problem. But for us, the real reason we celebrate is very different. And those things can create a huge distraction for us. So what I want to do today is try to draw us back to the real reason for why we celebrate and maybe give you some insights into it, I hope, that will become hooks and reminders for you this week. So that as you're going through the busyness of the Christmas season, you're going to remember, hey, here's the real reason why we celebrate this. I want to do that through three stories. The first story is about Mary. And you all know Mary. She's from a place called Nazareth. Nazareth is a neat village because most likely Nazareth was started by a group of people coming back from exile who believed in Isaiah's prophecy about the future Messiah. Isaiah was prophesying prophesying about the Messiah and the way he did it was to talk about a branch that would be from the tree of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father, King David's father. And so Isaiah said that there would be a branch from Jesse's tree or from David's tree ultimately as well that would come forth and would be the Messiah that would rescue Israel. And the Hebrew word for branch is netzer. And so most likely what happened is the people that founded the village of Nazareth, Netzareth, named it after the netzer, the branch, because they were looking forward to the future Messiah. 
And it's in that village of Nazareth that Mary is and that Gabriel, the angel, comes to visit her in that village 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy in this little village, probably named after the promise of the future of the Messiah. And the angel Gabriel came to her to give her a heads up on what was about to happen. Here's the true story in Luke chapter one. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. Favored woman, the Lord is with you. Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. Favored woman, you found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Now try to imagine for a minute what it was like to be Mary, a teenage girl with an angel standing in front of you delivering this message. Greetings, you're favored. God is pleased with you and you're gonna give birth to a son and you're gonna call him Jesus. And she was shocked. She was terrified clearly because the angel had to tell her, don't be afraid. So obviously she was starting to get afraid. What an amazing message for a teenage girl to get. She, she would be married soon, but they lived shorter lives back then. So they got married earlier. And here she is, just a teenage girl, getting this message from an angel. And the angel says, you have found favor with God. He is pleased with you. What that means is probably you have a good heart. You try to help people. You try to follow God's commands. You try to live the way he wants you to live. You have found favor with God. You've been chosen to bring a very special person into this world. Normally, of course, parents get to pick the name of their child. But in this case, God is bringing this child into the world through Mary. And so God gets to pick. And God chooses the name Jesus. Jesus wasn't a particularly special name at the time. It's kind of like John or Jim today. Those are very common names. Jesus was a very common name. It wasn't that unique, but it did have a very special meaning behind it. And that's why it was so popular. Jesus was the modernized version of Yeshua, which is what we now call Joshua. So when you think of Joshua, we call it the name Joshua in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And, the, and Jesus was the modernized version of that. And Yeshua was actually based on two older Hebrew words, Yahweh and Hosea. And that means God saves. So Jesus was the hip, modern, culturally relevant version of saying God saves that traces back through Yeshua to Yahweh Hosea. And how amazing is it that God would choose to enter the human race and take on a name for himself that was very culturally relevant at the time. This was a modernization of the old Hebrew. He could have taken some lofty old Hebrew name that was hard to pronounce. He could have, he could have done something that would sort of be befitting of the, the regality and the, the royalty of this person, how special he was. But no, he picked a modern contemporary name that lots of people had. Lots of other people in the Bible had the name of Jesus. And so he picked a common, normal name to enter the human race, but it's a name with incredibly special meaning behind it. And there's even more meaning behind that name. It, it grew to be prominent in the early church. And of course, we think of it as a very special name, most of us today. But the angel said something else about this Jesus and who this child would be. In verse 32, he said, he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary had heard words like this before. See, every Israelite knew this language here that Gabriel is using. It was the language that was used of the prophet Isaiah. They had heard it at synagogue, read many times from Isaiah chapter 9. This language about a a Messiah who would come from the line of David and would sit on David's throne and would reign forever and ever. This was known to them. This was familiar language to them. And so what Gabriel was revealing to Mary here was that this is not going to be an ordinary boy. You're going to conceive and give birth to a son and he's going to be a very special individual, the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. See, what Gabriel was saying was, this boy you are going to deliver will be the Messiah, the promised one that Isaiah wrote about long ago. And Mary hears all of these words and she accepts them as true. She even says, may it it be done as you have said. She spends a few more days in Nazareth before she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. And in those few days in Nazareth, I just wonder, I wonder if she stopped by the synagogue and said, could you just pull out that scroll of Isaiah again and read that to me? I mean, what did Isaiah have to say about this? What, what, was, what, again, what was it again that Isaiah said about the Messiah? What would he be like? What, what will happen with this boy if what this angel said is true? Isaiah, as I mentioned, lived 700 years earlier during a very difficult time in the nation of Israel's history. The kingdoms were divided into the north and the south and they didn't always get along. They didn't have great rulers. They had some terrible enemies. The biggest one back during Isaiah's time was Assyria, but Babylon would soon be a threat as well. They were rising. And the nation lived in fear that any day one of these enemies could come in and just wipe them out. And so they were wondering, has God abandoned us? Where is God in all of this? Why is this nation of supposedly chosen people of Israel struggling so much? And that's where Isaiah comes in. Isaiah comes in as a prophet and he explains to them what has happened with their relationship with God because they rejected God. God didn't just reject them. They rejected God. They abandoned him. And Isaiah explains this, but then he says, there is hope. There is a future for you. It may not look like it now. It may not look like Israel has much of a future right now, but there is a future for you. And it's going to come through a child. And multiple times through Isaiah's prophecy, through his book, he explains that there will be this child that will come and will be a rescuer and a deliverer. And it will be this amazing thing. But the language he uses makes it clear that this is no ordinary human. This will be a special child. Here's what he says in chapter nine, verse six. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. There's that language again. Then he says this, which I love, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. In other words, this is a done deal. God has spoken. This is going to happen. There will be this child. We'll do all these incredible things. And to the people in Isaiah's day, this must have been such a strange thing to hear for them living in fear every day of being invaded. How could they ever have everlasting peace? That seemed like it was a long ways off, and it was. And a ruler who is fair and just, that was nothing like King Ahaz. That was nothing like the rulers they had. They didn't have rulers that were fair and just. 
And this one would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's talk about each of those names and what they mean. A Wonderful Counselor doesn't just rule over people. Counsel means to advise. And Wonderful just means he's really good at it. So he's a really good advisor is what wonderful counselor means. He's this amazing king who would not just reign over people, but would actually come alongside them to guide them and counsel them. That's an incredible thing that this is who the Messiah would be. That's amazing. That's what Jesus wants to be for you, a trusted advisor, a counselor who gives really good advice. And he does that through his word, the Bible. He does that through prayer and the Holy Spirit. He does that through his people. He, he wants to be there for you as a trusted advisor, a wonderful counselor. This is nothing like the kings that Israel knew. This is a very special individual. He's mighty God. Mighty God because he's so powerful. He's so much bigger than any challenge we could possibly ever experience. Whatever crisis you are going through right now, whatever difficulty you are facing in your life today, the mighty God is bigger than all of it. And he doesn't want to just sit there from a distance and go, yeah, that's not a big deal. He wants to come alongside you and counsel you and guide you through it. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's the everlasting father. Jesus said, I and the father are one. He is the everlasting father. He's the son of God, but that's not a biological relationship. That's a positional relationship that he enters into. He is God himself and he is eternal. He is everlasting. He had no beginning. He had no end. We celebrate the birth of Jesus this week, right? And yet there is no birth of Jesus the way, the way we would think of it. We really celebrate the incarnation of Jesus because Jesus always existed. And you may ask, how is that possible? I mean, shouldn't there have been something before Jesus that caused Jesus to start to exist? How can it be that he is everlasting? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know how he could be eternal. My son asked me this a, a week and a half ago. He said, hey, over dinner, all of a sudden, randomly, I mean, we're probably talking about something totally different. He's like, how is it possible that God always existed and that, that no one like started God? How is that possible? And the answer is, I don't know. But no matter what you believe about the beginning of everything, there is going to end up, and I don't know how it got there. No matter what, even if you believe that it's just a big bang that came from nothing or a multiple universes or whatever it is you believe, you can always get to the point where you ask the question, well, how did that get there? And how did that get there? And what caused that? And what caused that? See, eventually there's something that's eternal. Eventually there is something that existed before everything else that caused everything else in some way and so no matter what we have this problem and the Bible tells us that the answer is, well, it was God. How? I don't know. Maybe one day we will know. But the Bible says that Jesus is the everlasting father. He is eternal. Never had a beginning. Has no end. He's the prince of peace. Prince doesn't mean the son of a king here. It means an administrator. The prince would be like a governor of a territory where he would be given responsibility for a certain area. And the fact that he's the Prince of Peace means he's an administrator whose territory is just filled with peace. He governs so well, he leads so well, he rules so well that his area is just marked by peace. It's what it is. And so he's an administrator of peace. He structures things in such a way that it creates peace. That's what that means, the Prince of Peace. And we experience that both now and we will experience that in a bigger way in the future. We have that now if we're a follower of Jesus because we've entered into, into his kingdom. And the kingdom of Jesus is a place of peace. We have peace with God because of what he's done for us to rescue us and forgive us. We can be at peace no matter what difficulties we face in our life. 
because of what Jesus has done for us and the hope that we have in him. And then one day we will experience true and ultimate peace and everything on this earth will be at peace because Jesus will reign everywhere. That's what the Prince of Peace is all about. The angels, when they came to Bethlehem 2000 years ago and spoke to the shepherds, what did they say? Glory to God in the highest heaven, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Peace on earth, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. So Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah and 700 years later, in, Bethlehem, or in Nazareth, the angel Gabriel ties this prophecy to what Mary is experiencing and other New Testament passages link back to Isaiah to explain what's happening with Jesus. And so everything Isaiah said came true. Jesus was born as a child, just like Isaiah said, he lived a perfect life. He taught his followers how to carry on his movement. He died on a cross and he came back to life proving that he could conquer sin and death because he was no ordinary human. In the aftermath of all of that, after Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, he had trained his followers to go sp spread the good news about him and what he brought as the Messiah, as the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, to spread the good news about him to others. And so the early church grew rapidly as they shared this message around. They met at the temple regularly. There's this place when you walk up the eastern steps of the temple, you can't get in this way now, but it, you, you can walk up the steps and there's just a wall. It's all walled off, but there used to be this big long porch called Solomon's Portico with columns, hundreds of columns lined up. And it was this wonderful space that was covered and you could go in there so that you could pray or you could talk with people sheltered from the sun or the weather. And the early church would gather there regularly to pray and, and teach and, and talk with each other and fellowship. One day, Peter and John were heading there at about three o'clock in the afternoon to go to this prayer gathering. And as they were walking up these eastern steps of the temple compound, they passed this guy who had been brought in by his friends, a man who couldn't walk. He was being carried there. He was carried there almost every day for 40 years because he could not walk. He could not work. He could not make an income. And so he sat there just past Solomon's portico at the at the intersection between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews so that he could beg for money at a gate called the beautiful gate. It's the main entrance where you go in from Solomon's portico through the Gentile court into the Jewish court. There's a beautiful gate there and he would sit there and he would beg for money. And as Peter and John were walking by and this guy was walking in as well, they sort of crossed paths. And this guy, while he's being carried, he's just kind of reached over to Peter and John and said, hey, you have any coins? And Peter looked at him. He didn't have a lot of money. And he said, I don't have any gold or silver for you, but I'll give you what I have. Here's what he said. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And then Peter reached out his hand to him and he started to pull him up. I don't know what this guy was thinking at the moment, but suddenly the Bible says his ankles and his feet were healed and strengthened. Because you have to imagine after 40 years, they had just completely atrophied from not having any use. And so the Bible says, not only were they healed, but they were also strengthened. In other words, the muscles were brought back to life so that he could get up and he could walk around. After 40 years of not doing this, and he got up and he started to walk around and then he started to jump and run around. And he was so excited and he followed Peter and John to where they were going into Solomon's portico and a crowd started to gather around because this was a crazy thing that was happening here. And this guy was causing a commotion and all the people saw this guy and they knew him because they'd seen him for years sitting at the beautiful gate begging for money. They knew this guy was not able to walk. There was no question about whether this was a hoax or not. They had seen this guy for decades. They knew how crippled he was. 
And yet here he was jumping around and they wanted to know how was he healed. And it's in this moment that Peter sees an opportunity, an opportunity to share about Jesus. And here is what he says to give all of this crowd around him context for what led to this healing of this man. He says in Acts 3, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. Through faith in the name of Jesus. In other words, Peter is not taking credit for this. He's not saying I touched him and healed him. He's saying it's actually Jesus that healed him. And in fact, this man had faith in Jesus. So there's more to their conversation that happened. This man had faith in Jesus and Jesus healed him because he had faith. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Then Peter went on to tell them how Jesus had suffered and died, which many of them knew because many of these same people were there that terrible day. In fact, some of them were in the crowd that shouted, crucify him. They knew exactly what happened with Jesus. And Peter said, Jesus is now offering to you to come into your life as well. If you have faith in him, just like this man did, he encouraged them to turn away from their sins, to turn to God and said that they could receive Jesus into their lives. The temple leaders got involved at this point. They came out and said, what are you doing? What's going on with this guy being healed? We don't like what's happening here. They arrested Peter and John. They threw him in jail for the night. And the next morning they brought him out and they said, how on earth did this guy get healed? What is going on here? And here's what Peter said. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. What happened in the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection is that the name of Jesus became revered by the early church. It was no longer considered just a common name that a lot of people had, but Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, was a special name. And in the name of Jesus, the Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, it meant so much more to them than just what that name meant. Yes, the name of Jesus, God saves, is an incredible thing, but it means so much more than that. It represents the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All of those names get wrapped up into Jesus Christ. This man was healed, not by Peter, but by Jesus. And and Peter actually says, faith in the name of Jesus. See, believing in Jesus isn't just about the name itself. It's about everything it represents. That wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Faith in Jesus means faith in those other names too. That he is no ordinary man. He's not just a human. He is the Messiah the mighty God, the wonderful counselor. Now that was a long time ago. And it's understandable that we might question, okay, what's going on today? Why is this this long span of time here from when this happened back 2000 years ago until today? In fact, you might be wondering, why is God letting this continue? I mean, if Jesus' kingdom is about peace, I don't see a lot of peace around me today. If Jesus is supposed to be this wonderful counselor, why are so many people making really bad decisions? Why doesn't God just end this and start his kingdom right now? Just bring the whole thing. Everybody that's already trusted in Jesus, we're in. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, you're out. And we're just gonna go ahead and do this thing. Why doesn't he just do this now? And Peter, Peter addresses this. The same Peter 
who reached out to this man and pulled him up, the same Peter who preached to the crowd about the name of Jesus, that same Peter deals with this very question with a group of Christians a little later on in his life. See, because for the first few decades after Jesus went away and and sent his disciples on this mission, they really thought, okay, this is going to happen soon, right? This is imminent. This is going to happen any moment. Jesus is going to bring his kingdom here and and he's going to wipe out the Romans and this is going to be great. And even though I believe in him spiritually, I want his kingdom to come. I want it to come quickly. I want it to come now. And they're starting to get desperate and wondering, when is this going to happen? And Peter writes to the Christians and he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is like a day. That's amazing. Because what it means is that even though from your perspective and my perspective, it's been just over 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth as a human, as one of us, from God's perspective, how long has it been? Two days. That's not a very long time. That's not a long time at all. And then Peter follows it up by saying, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. See, some people were wondering, Lord, how long is it gonna be? Come on. He's not being slow about his promise. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. See, Jesus is waiting because he wants more people to trust in his message. He wants more people to join his kingdom. He is being patient so that more and more people will experience the life change that happens when you believe in Jesus and and he becomes your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting father, your prince of peace. And all of the things that the Messiah brings to us, he wants to bring to you individually. And it's an incredible thing that the king who would reign forever would want to have that kind of relationship with us. Now, maybe you've already believed in Jesus. And so maybe today is just a reminder for you of what he's done for you. And maybe a peek behind the curtain at some of the details behind the scenes and maybe some reminders this week as you go throughout the Christmas season and all of the stuff that that entails of the real reason why we celebrate. But maybe for you, you've never trusted in Jesus as your savior. Maybe for you, you have not made that commitment. And so I want you to know that Jesus wants to be your wonderful counselor. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be there with you. He wants to change your life. He wants to transform it so that you can be a part of his kingdom of peace. And here's how he does that. He says, what we need to do is come to him and we do this in our minds because God can, God can hear our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. And so we can pray to him in our minds and just say, Lord, I understand that I have been opposed to you. I've been an enemy of you. I've done things that are contrary to your will. We call that sin. And Lord, I know that I shouldn't do those things. And I know that I can't stop those things. And I've tried to do everything I can, but it's not working. And so Lord, I just bring myself before you and I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to change me. Make me a part of your kingdom, God. I wanna be a part of your family. I want you to be my wonderful counselor, my mighty God, my everlasting father, my prince of peace. The Bible says when we do that, when we repent of our sins, that means we turn away from our sins. We turn away inwardly and externally and we turn toward God when we do that. He makes us a part of his family and a part of his kingdom. He sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us and he starts to transform us. It doesn't happen right away, but we enter into a lifetime of growing with him and him teaching us, him being our wonderful counselor to guide us to be the kind of person that he wants us to be. Our wonderful counselor, as he works with us in every difficulty, 
more powerful than anything we could face. That's what Jesus wants to be for you. Now, as I close here today, I want you to know that at the end of this service, there are going to be people up here who can pray with you. And if you're someone who is ready to commit to Jesus, maybe you already have, maybe you just did in your mind, maybe you have more questions. I want you to come up and talk with someone from our prayer team so that they can can hear your questions and answer them as best they can and explain to you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Or if you need prayer for any other reason, please come up, we'd be happy to talk with you and pray for you. No matter what, don't forget the reason we celebrate this season. It's about the prophecy of Isaiah. It's about the angel coming to Mary and tying those things together. It's about what Peter said afterward that that preached the message of Jesus Christ, this promised child who would come and be our Messiah, our Savior. Don't miss that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to us. Thank you, Lord, for going through this unbelievable process, very painful for you at times, so that we could see everything you went through and understand that you meant it and understand that you are our God and you want to be our Savior. Thank you for transforming my life. Thank you for transforming the lives of so many people here and watching online. And Lord, I pray that you would do that for many more. If there are those that are struggling right now with what to believe, my prayer, God, is that you would touch their heart. Show them you're real. Show them that you want to be their wonderful counselor. Lord, come alongside them and guide them. Show them that you're more powerful than any challenge or problem they face right now, God. Maybe this week for some will be the week that they join your kingdom. Help us to remember this week, Lord, what really matters. Help us to teach that to our kids and represent that to our friends and our family to show that with you, life is different. Our Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.